So we're going through this Experiencing God series, and uh, we're, we're on this part of obedience. And this is, to me, where it really starts to get real, right? At the beginning, it's talking about God's Word and where we hear from God and through His Spirit and among His people and hearing God's voice and experiencing Him. And, and that's all, you know, we love that part. And now it's gotten into adjusting our life and how do we follow what we're hearing from God and how do we obey. And this is where the rubber really starts to meet the road and it becomes tough. And today we're talking about obedience. And as I was doing the study, uh, Blackaby's study, um, he's going to give you lots of great stuff on obedience and things uh, that, and good teaching on obedience and how we hear God's voice and how we are to follow. But there is just one part of obedience that I think was sort of missing in there that I want to get to today. And so um, as we talk about obedience, there's sort of two ways of thinking about obedience that it's easy for us to fall into or or two traps. And if we fall into these ways of thinking, then it'll rob our obedience of joy and of its spiritual power. And so as you're thinking about obedience to God, I just want you to think about this. The first sort of wrong way to think about obedience as you're doing this study or as you're considering your own walk with God is to take a humanistic approach to obedience. In other words, it's The thinking that I will obey God in order to try to control the consequences or circumstances of my life, especially the negative ones. And this humanistic way of looking at obedience looks at the consequences of obedience or disobedience mainly in the light of how it impacts us, right? That's the humanistic side that I'm talking about. And we have to be careful that we don't look at obedience humanistically about what it means to us. It takes the wrong view of God that He is some sort of inattentive parent who is primarily interested in our right behavior. And God is happy when we obey, and He's upset when we mess up His plans and sort of annoy Him. And so we figure it's in our best interest to learn the system and work it to our advantage. And obedience in this case is for our own self-interest. If if we avoid disobedience, we can avoid punishment. If we obey, we expect a reward. And even as Christians, we can fall into this sort of humanistic way of thinking of, okay, I've, I've got to obey God because then good things happen. Or I've got to make sure I don't disobey God because I don't want any bad things to happen. And it, it ends up primarily being about how do I keep my life happy and, and where I want it to be. If you're telling me these are the rules, then I'll follow those rules. And it's self-focused. We're literally trying to use obedience as a means for our benefit. And that is not to say that there are not great benefits in obeying God. Of course, there obviously are great benefits in in obeying God. And it's not to say that there's not consequences for disobeying God. There can be consequences for disobedience. But the Christian motive for obedience is not our benefit. It's not to benefit us or to avoid a negative consequence in our physical and our temporal life. Christians who try this approach... And if you're trying this approach in your Christian life and your obedience to God, you're just trying to work things out so that if it's good for me, if things are working for me, then I must be doing it right. Then you end up failing in obedience primarily because God is not an inattentive or demanding parent. And God does not reward and punish in that way. Christians that weigh the outcome of their actions on the benefit to themselves are not acting any differently than a non-Christian. I mean, everybody does that. Everybody decides whether what they're about to do or what they shouldn't do is going to have a positive or a negative impact on their life. And if as Christians we simply do the same thing, we're not behaving any differently in spite of the great and glorious and good God that we have. If you're just measuring purely physical or temporal results, then you will act in your self-interest. And it will sway how you respond to what God might be saying. And so this is true for positive outcomes or to avoid negative outcomes. God's people 
have struggled with seeing this reality from the beginning, but is probably most clearly captured in the Psalms. And this is why it appears difficult for us when obedience doesn't naturally bring benefit to us or disobedience doesn't naturally bring punishment especially to others. In Psalm 73, 2-5, the psalmist is crying out to God. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they had no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek, and they are not in trouble as others are, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So you see, what's, with this way of thinking, you can start to think, if I choose what I do or don't do based on what I think is a happy or good outcome to me, then that must be God's blessing or God's disappointment based on the outcome. I'm behaving exactly as anybody does. And in fact, you can behave in a way that's evil and the outcomes can be good for you. And so you'll be looking at what should I do next in my life or, or God, what would you have me do? And you start to weigh the consequences based on well, what turns out good for me. And that must be what God wants me to do. And that is not how we're to look at obedience. That's a humanistic, self-focused way of looking at obedience. And it's clearly evident that it's possible to prosper outside of obedience to God. And so we have to be careful that we don't make our decisions based on what prospers us. And it's possible to not prosper in disobeying God, or it's possible to prosper in obeying God. So obedience to God often leads to a situation in life that we did not plan for and we would not particularly choose for ourselves. And so we have to understand that as believers is that sometimes and often obedience to God actually leads us into a place that's not prosperous for us. It's not what we would have chosen. It's not what we would have planned. And so we have to, first of all, not be humanistic in our approach to obedience. And then secondly, and this is very closely related, but it's subtly different, we must not be legalistic in our approach to obedience. And this is similar to the first, but it's a little more subtle because it's, it's not at first seem so blatantly selfish. The, the legalistic approach to the view of obedience is that as a rightful, pleasing, measuring up to God's holiness in a way that earns favor or blessing from God. And so you're not, you're not obeying, you know, in a purely self-interested sense. You're, you're feeling in a very, you know, spiritual and religious sense that you want to measure up to the holiness that God has set before you but you obey because you feel that if you can measure up to the holiness standard that God has and that pleases God, then that will earn us favor or blessing from God based on how much we measure up to His holiness. If we just act good enough, then God will love us more and bless our lives. And it shares the same expectations that obedience is primarily about our blessing. But it has a little veneer of religiosity over it so that it seems more faithful. And so legalism is something that a lot of people easily fall into because it seems right. And it even seems like that's what the Bible is teaching, but it's just not quite right. It has, it's just still focused on ourselves. And we read in the Old Testament and, we, and, it, and it seems like it's what all those Old Testament biblical heroes did. I mean, like didn't Jonah disobey and get punished in his disobedience? Right? And then didn't Gideon obey and he was blessed? Or Esther obey and she was blessed? So isn't this pattern of disobedient punishment, obedience, blessing seem to play out? But if you actually test that idea, because that's where I know this is where our minds goes when we think about obedience. We think it in the humanistic or the legalistic sense. We think if we obey God, we're going to get good things. If we disobey God, God's going to punish us. And we go here right away. But if you test this idea with God's people, and whether God's people obey in order to see blessing or in order to avoid bad circumstances, we can test it about, against almost anyone in Scripture. If you test it against Moses' obedience, 
Okay, so Moses obeyed to go and lead his people out of Israel. Think about the situation that Moses is in. He is quite comfortably herding sheep. You want to talk about a dream job. Other than night watchman in a mattress factory, herding sheep, herding sheep is the second best job, right? I mean, you just kind of sit there and watch these things eat. That's your job, right? Like, that's it. I mean, Moses had 40 years of this. He was an experienced sheep herder. Right? He understood how to herd sheep. And so he's just sitting there watching sheep eat. And his call to obedience was not continued comfort in his life. His call to obedience had nothing to do with blessing on him. He's like, I am blessed. I've got a dream job here. And God calls him to lead this ragtag group of disobedient people out of Egypt, confront Pharaoh, go through plagues, part the sea, face an army, all the stuff that Moses went through. So if you look at obedience when Moses follows God's call to obedience, it's not, it's not something he would have considered a blessing in his life, right? Or, or you look at Joseph fleeing Potiphar's wife when he's put in that situation of temptation and what would be better for him or more pleasing for him and, and a better situation, he flees the situation in obedience to God's commands and ends up in jail. That's not a blessing in obedience. That's a punishment in obedience, right? You think of Jeremiah acting as a prophet. Nobody listened to him. He's called by God to speak to his people. Nobody's listening. He's beaten in the stocks. He's left to die in a cistern or any of the prophets when you consider them. When they followed obediently the word of God, it was not for blessing immediately in their life. It was to accomplish things for God. You think of Jesus. You think of Paul. You think of Peter. You think of John. All their examples. They were not obedient to gain personal blessing. And so we have to be careful that we don't start to think of God as someone who is, if we obey, then we get some immediate payback in our life. And if we disobey, then he's going to punish us. Because it's more subtle, it's more complicated than that. The truth is, very often, obedience to God causes short-term difficulty in our life. And often, choices we can never return from. And I know this is not a great sales pitch for obedience right now, but we have to, as God's children and as God's people, if we're truly professing Christians, have to understand what obedience means. And we have to find a motive for obedience that God has given us that gives us true joy and true power in our obedience because it doesn't come necessarily from the blessing in our temporal and our physical lives. The motivation for our obedience is not that we're going to have a bigger bank account or that we're going to get the car that we want or we're going to end up living in the city that we want or we're going to have the marriage that we want or we're going to have anything else. That's not why we obey. That's actually a heresy to treat God that way. That you can somehow use obedience to His law as a way to condition His response to you. So as you go through the Bible, you see that these people had some other motive for the outcome of their obedience. All of these people, all of these examples, every example, in fact, that you will find in the Bible share the same outcome. And it's this. And it's what we need to learn today. Their obedience was for, the, for God's glory. Their obedience was for the glory of God. That is why they obeyed. That's where their joy came from. It's where their power came from. It's where their strength and conviction came from. It's because their obedience led to God's glory. It was the same even of Jonah. Jonah obeyed, and everything that Jonah was asked to do was so that God could be glorified in Nineveh. Gideon obeyed so that God could be glorified before the nations. The nations would see God rescue his people and be praised. And it's true that disobedience in Jonah put... 
Jonah put himself in places he never should have been. And as we disobey, we may put ourselves in places we never should have been that God will then have to rescue us from in order for us to obey him. But it was not for Jonah's blessing that God asked him to obey. It was for his glory. It was for God to be glorified, even in Nineveh. Even among the most hated enemies of Israel, God said, my name will be glorified. And it's the same for Abraham, for Job, for Moses, for Joseph, for Jeremiah, for Jesus, for Paul. Every example you find in Scripture where God calls his people to obey, it is for one motive. It is for the glory of God. Because he's, his name and he will be glorified. And again, this is not to say that blessing does not flow from obedience. It certainly does. But it's not the sort of blessing you might expect. And blessing is not the motive of our obedience. Obedience is a means towards much more than a bigger house or a happier marriage or, you know, just getting what I want out of my, out of life. It's the glory of God. And so in your study this week, Henry Blackaby is going to give a lot of good instruction around obedience and it's good biblical instruction and there's nothing wrong with it. But I was just struck by the fact that it missed an opportunity to explicitly explain the purpose and the motive and the energy behind Christian obedience. And why true Christian obedience stems from a desire to see God glorified. Our whole faith, our whole relationship with God, our whole understanding of who He is, is that we treasure Christ, that He is our greatest value, that God is the greatest good, that He is worthy of all praise. And our whole motivation in our life is to see God glorified. Everything that happens in church, everything that happens in Christian kingdom, in God's kingdom on earth, happens because God isn't glorified. The glory of God is the ultimate good that motivates Christian behavior. And Christian obedience finds its greatest joy and power in seeing God glorified. The motive of Christian obedience is bringing glory to God and trusting Him in our life. And why is it so important? Why, why, why is God's glory so important? Why is that the motive? It's important because what is chiefly wrong with the world is that God's glory is lacking. Right? The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the purpose of the kingdom, the purpose of the church, the purpose of every Christian life is to bring glory to God. There there are over 7 billion people on the planet and barely any of them glorify God as they are meant to do. And everything that we do as Christians, everything the church does, everything that God's kingdom is doing, from Sunday school to missions in Africa, Those things happen because God isn't glorified. If God was being glorified, we wouldn't have to do those things. If God was being glorified as He should in every minute of every day in all of our lives, in every 7 billion life on the planet, we wouldn't have to come to church. It would just be church all the time all over. right? We wouldn't have to have Sunday school to teach them about the nature and goodness of God and to glorify Him. We wouldn't have to send missionaries to other countries. And they wouldn't have to send missionaries here because everybody would be glorifying God. Everything happens because God isn't being glorified. That's why we do missions. That's why we teach Sunday school. That's why we read our Bible. That's why we do everything here is because the world does not glorify God. And so these things have to happen to see God glorified. Everything exists for the glory of God. 
And this is the chief problem of, of mankind, of the whole world. Paul states it in Romans 1, 22-23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, this is the chief problem of the world. We exchanged the glory of God for things that were inglorious. But that's not just how it started out, and it's not how it's meant to be in the end. The prophet Habakkuk says, as he's teaching of the last days, he says in Habakkuk 2.14, he says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That, that's where we're going. That, that's the end thing. Is, is the land, the whole earth covered in the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's the end game. That's where it's supposed to be. And so it's important that we know our purpose when it comes to obedience. It's important that we understand the drive behind obedience. It's it's not humanistic. It's not legalistic. It's not because God's a demanding parent. It's not because we want some blessing. It's because it brings glory to God. Obedience brings God glory. And obeying Him joins Him in His plan to bring Himself glory. In the letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. We were predestined to be adopted for his praise and glory. Or Jesus teaching the disciples, and this is sort of the main text that I picked. If you just take one text away from today, this is the one that I think is most practical. When Jesus is teaching the disciples about who they are and why they're called to good works, he says to them in Matthew 5, 14 and 16, he says, you are the light of the world. This is who you are. You are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and you'll get a new car. Oh, no. So that that they may see your good works and you'll be rewarded. No. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This This is why we obey. This is why we let our light shine. This is why we are called to follow. So that people see us obeying. They see our obedience. They see our good works. And they give glory to God. The purpose of Christian obedience is glory to the Father. It's not so that God can bless us. He will. It's not so that we can you know, get rich or have good health or have everything go our way. I can tell you it won't. Jesus says, let your light shine. Do good. Obey God so that others see your good obedience and give glory to God. And so now even with regard to giving glory to God, we have to think rightly about that and what giving glory means very quickly. Just a couple errors there that we can fall into. And hopefully you all know that giving God glory doesn't mean adding to God's glory. As if we have some little bit of glory of ourselves that, you know, we can let God have because He's lacking some. God's not lacking any glory that we have to give Him. So when we say give God glory, it's not like, oh, we're, you know, we're giving God something He doesn't have. And it doesn't mean improving God's gloriousness either. It's not like, well, God's glory is okay, but it's a little tarnished. And so when we obey and do things, we make His glory look better. We perfect His glory. We improve upon it. It's not that. We don't heighten His worth. We don't heighten His value. We don't heighten His beauty in any way. God is perfectly glorious. God is perfectly valuable. He is perfectly beautiful already on His own. Immutable forever without us. But what giving God glory then means for us is it means calling attention to the glory of God and showing God's glory where it is not seen for what it really is. And so if we understand these two things, that obedience and glory 
then we can say what obedience, what they aren't, we can say what they are. And so using that verse of, uh, that Jesus spoke there of Matthew 5, 14 and 16, just sort of trying to think about what then is obedience? What then is Christian obedience? How do we articulate what Christian obedience is in relation to glory? And I say it this way, our obedience is the manifestation or it's the radiance, because we're lights that shine. It's the radiance of our trust in God and His promises. So Christian obedience is the manifestation, it's the appearance, or it's the making known, or the showing, or the radiance outwards to the world of our trust in God and our trust in His promises. Because we trust in God, we obey Him. And our obedience is radiating out to the world that God-glorifying trust that we have. And it brings Him glory. And so how do we do that? Where does obedience glorify God? Like, let's get practical here. How, how does it that, that this radiates out the glory of God from all the different parts of our lives? And, and you can literally do that. That, that God, and, and I remember um, in Benton's message last week, he, he drew attention to that illustration by C.S. Lewis where he says, you know, you, you thought you were just a little cottage and, and God was going to clean something up here. And then you realize he's like busting out the doors and putting up towers and whole new rooms and banquet halls and everything else. And that's what's going on here because God's expecting obedience in every area of our life. We thought that God was just going to, you know, make us so we don't cuss as much anymore, and that would be fine. Or God was just going to change our Sunday morning routine, and we'd be happy with that. Or, or God was just going to you know, clean up our Netflix you know, habits, you know, and that would be enough. But God wants way more than that. God is, wants to be glorified and is glorified, and the radiance of our trust in Him and His promises radiates from every aspect of our lives. Very practically, how are we being obedient in our treatment of others? Are we a good boss? Are we a good employee? Are we treating each other with respect? Are we showing kindness? What about obedience in marriage? Are we mutually submissive to one another? Are we laying down our lives for our spouse? Are we edifying and building up our spouses in Christ? Obedience in our finances. Are we being generous and trusting? Or are we being fearful in self-security and grasping? Are we building God's kingdom with our finances? Or are we building our kingdom? Obedience in recreation. What are we doing with our spare time? How are we recreating? What are we watching on TV? Where are the places that we're going? Whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are honest, dwell on these things. Is that where we are? Are we being obedient in our recreation? What about in our identity? Are we being obedient to God and His Word even in our self-identity? Do we believe God about who we are and who He says we are and our relationship to Him? And do we live in our identity in Christ? Or do we believe our culture and put our trust in our culture? Or do we put our trust in the events of our past and the things that shaped us perhaps as children or as young adults and we put our identity in those things? Who do we trust? Who do we obey? Do we obey God's Word on these things? Or do we obey culture on these things? Obedience in sex. Is it partner honoring? Is our marriage bed pure? Are we showing kindness? Are we showing faithfulness in the marriage bed? Are we being obedient in our politics? And I'm not talking about who you vote for, but I'm talking about in the political reality that we live in, where are we putting our hope? Are we putting our hope in systems of policy and law? Or are we putting our hope in the sovereignty of God? Obedience towards parents. Namely, obey them. 
right? And care for them and honor them. Are we, are we showing obedience to God in this area? In our purchases, in our consumption? How, we live in such a materialistic society. How are we consuming in a way that is obedient to God and letting our trust in Him and His promises radiate out to the people around us? In every area of our life, it's that little cottage. He doesn't just want to change up the guest room. He's busting out the walls. He's putting up towers. He's putting in rooms you never even heard of. He wants every area of your life and obedience to God in these areas radiate out to the people around us our trust in God and whether we believe in Him or whether we believe in the culture. Whether we fear God and put our trust in His sovereignty or whether we fear culture and we put our trust in ourselves. In everything, we are to glorify God. That reminds me of a verse, 1 Corinthians 10. 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Right down to eating and drinking. There is nothing that escapes our purpose that isn't aimed at the glory of God. Faith obedience shows God to be glorious as he really is. People of faith, people who believe, people who trust God, they live their lives thrilled with the glory of God. Above computers, above sports, above clothes, above money, above profession, above approval, above anything this world has to offer, the glory of God thrills us far more. We hold the glory of God above everything else and are confident in God's promises and act in accordance to those promises that they rise above the circumstances. And these people, they don't ever fret over the future. They don't care what other people think. They're not concerned about the outcome of the circumstances because the glory of God is their greatest thrill and it's their purpose. They are so set on the glory of God in all that they believe and do. Those people stand out to us even now how different they are from the world. You, you know some people like that. You know people who have set their lives on the glory of God, on the pursuit of treasuring Christ and seeing His name glorified. And they stand out from the world. In fact, they stand out even from some of us. They stand out even from me. From my shallower and more timid and less glorifying faith. And I look at those people, and I realize they understand God's glory, and they understand obedience, and they're able to obey. They have joy in their obedience. They have the power to obey, and the effectiveness in their life because it is focused on the glory of God, and not on just whether they're going to see blessing or whether they're going to be punished or not. And so the application or the challenge to us is are, are we obeying in this area, these areas of our life where we know God's will is different for us? Are we living out of the faith that we say we have in His promises? Not negotiating with God, not weighing the consequences, not contemplating what will be better for me in the long run or what other people will think, but obeying because you trust God for His glory and your joy regardless of the consequences. That's the motive of Christian obedience. The motive of Christian obedience is God glorification regardless of outcomes and trusting that He has you. Trusting that He has you even if it looks bad. Right? Moses had to trust God even if it looked bad. Gideon had to trust God even if it looked bad. Joseph had to trust God even if it looked bad. Jesus had to trust the Father even though it looked bad. Paul had to trust the Father that his missionary journeys were to bring glory to God, even if he's going to get shipwrecked and beaten, all that other stuff. But if it brings glory to God, he trusts in the promises of God. And I just want to show you quickly with a couple examples here at the end of what that, how does God get glory in our obedience? How does it work? And I'll just give you a really simple example. Hopefully this will help you see it. 
So you probably had this experience or you remember it from your early childhood. You got a three or four year old on the side of the pool and dad's in the pool. And that three or four year old is there on the edge and it's a long way away from dad and dad is saying, jump. Now in that moment, how does the child glorify the father? Does the father glorify the father by, you know, running away from the edge and saying no? You know, does the, does the child glorify the father by just standing there shaking in fear? No, the, the child glorifies the father when the child jumps trusting that he or she will be caught and the father catches the child. You see, that's what Christian obedience is. is our, and everybody watching says, that child trusts that father. And, and, the, and the glory of the trust of the promise of that father is radiated out to everybody who watches. And Christian obedience is the same way. Christian obedience radiates out to the world. People see our obedience and they say, that God that they trust is truly trustworthy. His promises are good. He can be believed. He can be glorified. And the, the glory increases with sort of the, the, the danger of the, or the, or the depth of the faith, right? So then you think of that same child who's on the diving board, right? The three meter board. And dad's on the edge of the pool off to the side saying, jump, you'll be fine. I'll get you if anything happens. Right? And the child is thinking, there's no way. It, it takes me like a second to hit the water and dad is like 10 seconds away. There's, there's no way that he could possibly be there in time. But that child jumps and just as they hit the water, the father's arms are there. Yeah, he can do it. That child had no idea just how far and how fast the father could dive to catch them. And that's how our obedience is. The greater the risk, the greater God is glorified in our own lives. And the greater our trust is strengthened in obedience. You see what I'm saying here about Christian obedience? It brings glory to the Father. And just one last example, just I'm going to get to. This is the type of decisions that you're allowed or able to make when you trust in God's promises this way. And I'm going to go back to Abraham in Genesis 13. You remember that time when Abraham and Lot, they, they almost come to blows, right? They're almost fighting uh, because their, their herds have grown and they've got these big families and they're, they're all grazing on the same land and the, you know, the herdsmen are starting to fight with each other. And, and Abraham goes to Lot and he says, look east and look north and look west and look south. And he says, you pick. Just go whatever direction you want. You pick and I will take whatever's left over. And so Lot looks and he sees the green valley and, you know, the lush, you know, pasture land down there in the valley. And uh, now there's two cities down there, Sodom and Gomorrah. But Lot makes his choice anyway. And he sees all that lush green valley down there and he says, yeah, I, I know what I'm going to do. I know where, where I get my blessing. I'm going down to the valley. Didn't end up working out for him. But Abraham, you remember Abraham, he says, that's fine. You, you take that and I'll just take the sides of the mountains here, you know, the the kind of scraggly, rocky area, you know? And, and, and that's fine. I, I'm okay with that. Now, now, where does Abraham get the confidence to make decisions like that? Well, if you just keep reading in Genesis 13, just, just like immediately it says, after Lot had parted from him, like just a minute later, it says in verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west, all the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. 
You see, Abraham already knew the promise of God. Right? He's talking a lot, and he's saying, take whatever you want. He already knows it's all his. Right? He already knows God's promised him the entire promised land. He knows that everything that he can see is going to end up being his someday. It's just a matter of time. And so Abraham, this is what I'm trying to get at, because Abraham has such trust in the promise of God, because Abraham believes in the character and the nature of God, because he has so much faith in who God is and his promises, he can go through his life and he can say, you know what, if you want to take something from me, take it. If you need that, do it. If this needs to be done, I'll do it. You know, it doesn't matter. I'm not concerned about whether I get the best possible thing in my life right now or whether it's a blessing to me right now because I already know the promise of God, which is I get everything. God's already told me that the whole promised land is mine. It's just a matter of time, and it's a very brief time at that. A Christian, we're in the exact same situation. We have every promise of God in Christ. It's all ours. We get all the blessing in the end. It's waiting for us. And we just, it's just a matter of time, and it's a very brief time. And so when we are looking at this idea of obeying God, of obedience, of, of putting ourselves out there to say, God, you're calling me to hard things, and they are not necessarily going to be things that I would count as blessing in my life. You're calling me to things that are going to be difficult that I'm going to have to give up. Just remember that you have all the promises of a trustworthy God, and he is faithful, and he will deliver his blessing in time. It's all ours, Christians. We can trust that the God of the universe will catch us. He will do more than catch us. He will raise us up to co-reign with His Son, Jesus Christ. So this comes to us now. We understand here, I hope, where the crisis of faith comes from. This is where obedience... This is the steps of obedience. We have that crisis of faith. Are we going to trust in the promises of God or not? And those that trust in those promises faces forces us into these major life adjustments that Benton talked about last week. We have to we see put before us the adjustments that are going to take place in our life, the changes in our finances, in our recreation, in our relationship, in our marriages, in our politics, in our identity, and we are confronted with those adjustments and then those adjustments manifest themselves when we obey and we do the things that God is calling us to do by his word. And what we do then radiates to everyone the faith that we have. And and the glory that is in God because of our trust in Him. And this is, if you try to obey the other way, if you try to obey just by, you know, what's going to work out for me, or whether I'm afraid God's going to punish me, or whether God's going to reward me, if you try to obey that way, you're going to get tired of living that legalistic life really quick. There is no power, there is no joy in that. When your obedience stems from the fact that God is being glorified, that you are the radiance of God's glory from your obedience in your life, there is a ton of joy and there is a ton of power in that. Because your life is radiating the glory of God and God is being glorified and His promises are coming to you. Good things will come from our obedience, but we don't obey to get good things. We don't obey to condition God's love or blessing. We obey because we trust Him and He'll be glorified by our obedience. Next week, we're going to talk. I've been talking about obedience in the day to day areas of our life and all the areas that God intends to transform. But next week, we're going to talk about what about more than just obedience in these areas of our life? What about when God calls us to something big, maybe even calls us to a ministry bigger than ourselves? That's next week. But it's not going to be because we think something good is going to happen to us. We're going to do it because it gives God glory. Let's pray.